Once you do one home, you know you never want to do one again because it's a waste of time. You want to do a minimum of two at a time. You got to build a business model that's recession-proof. People try to push deals and they try to convince themselves that it's a good deal, even if it's not. The shortest cycle in real estate would be wholesale. Flip, it's three to six months. A rental, couple of years. A development is five plus years. What's the best way to make big equity in today's market? <laughs> is big and affordable. What's up, well Bitters? Today, I have got a guy who's doing a ton of ground-up construction. In fact, he has built over 1,100 units. He's got hundreds coming up next year in 2024. He's doing adaptive reuse, taking these office spaces and turning them into something completely new. I've got Jerome Maldonado. What's up, man? How you doing, bro? How's everything? It's good to see you again, man. Thanks yeah, for changing your flight so you could come on the show. Yeah, no. Anytime a good friend asks me to do something <laughs> like that, I'll, I'll, I'll make accommodations. There we go. You know, times like this, it's good. I appreciate you. So, you know, we just held a meetup on Friday. It was good. Yeah, it was good. A lot of fun. And then, um, you know, we were just talking and I know maybe like in your real estate career, you probably got started doing some of the fix and flips and stuff before branching into this or how did it go for you? Yeah. You know, in 98, I got into concrete and I started buying rental houses and so we were doing more build, like buy and hold, more yeah. like the burst strategy when the, before burst strategy was popular. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I, uh, in the nineties, I was doing uh, multi-level marketing. We were doing training centers. So I started when I was forced with my concrete company to get an office, I bought a retail center and I used the same business model that I was using in multi-level marketing, we do training centers. I would lease desk space because I sucked at multi-level marketing, <laughs> but I could make money leasing desks. So that I got good at. So, so you're doing the WeWork model before it was a thing. Yeah, bro. I was exactly. And what we were doing is, is I landed up saying, okay, well, shit, if I have to get a building for my construction company, I don't want to pay for it. Yeah. So I'll just buy one that's bigger than I need, lease it and let the tenants pay for it. And, um, and it was as simple as that. I know a lot of people complicate the whole real estate thing. And for me, it was just about not being rent free. Yeah. And that's how I got into commercial real estate was doing a owner finance deal on an old piece of junk building. And, um, I, I, I put it back together where it looked beautiful, beautified the outside, gutted the inside. And I've been, I'm still in the same office. I've been in that office for 25 years. Whoa. Yep. So that's crazy. Yep. So it's been, it's been a great business. In fact, I was just talking to one of your, uh, one of your gentlemen just a bit ago. And I said, I, I love coming into like your office, Grant's office, Cody's now doing it. You know, I've been into a bunch of guys off. You guys, you guys have expanded. I'm sitting back going, damn, my stuff has cobwebs on it. I need, <laughs> 25 I, years. Dude, dude, I got to grow, man. And, and it's uh, the last time it was renovated. Well, we, we've renovated throughout, you know, we've made yeah, changes. Yeah. Like we've done podcast rooms. We've, yeah. you know, we own the whole building. So we've, we, we had a dance school in there for my wife at one point in time wow. for 11 I years. I can't imagine all the businesses that have been in it over 25 years. Yeah. There's been a lot. Yeah. How many square feet is like the total building? That building's 12,000 square feet. The total building is. Got it. And so we, we occupy a little over 3000 square feet of it. Okay. And so we, we've definitely outgrown it in its time, but we also have another building down the road that we also use for our construction company as well. Got it. So we, we've bought more real estate down the street. So it's not all in the one, same building, but we still occupy the original space we did 20 plus years ago. Got it. That's crazy. I think we have about 12,000 square feet between the two offices. Yeah. But, um, so you start off in commercial because you're, you're a, uh, well, actually I got to hear about this multi-level marketing. So what were you trying to sell? Dude, we were selling water filters and <laughs> vitamins back in the nineties when there was no water, there was no water filtration. 
It yeah. was, we had, there was Evian water and distilled water and we were selling water filters. So if you remember the old PVC pipes, the little spigot that came out was uh, NSA. We were mm-hmm. a spinoff from NSA and I actually landed up crushing it a few years into it. I was in the company for five and a half years. First three, I totally sucked. And then the last two and a half years, I actually became a top money earner, but it took me three years of literally making nothing to, to finally get there. Mm. So how did you learn to actually, I mean, would you say multi-level marketing is more marketing or sales? Like what, what is it? It's both. Um, I mean, it's, there's a, there's all, there's a, there's a a marketing component to anything that we do. Right. Right. But everything we do is sales. Yeah. So the second that we come face to face, um, everything that we do is sales from that point forward. Marketing just gets you like the opportunity to make a sale. Yeah. I think people mistake marketing as a way to sell. Marketing is, is uh, misconceived though, because when we like for, I was a big subway franchisee. We were one of the largest in the Southwest for a long time. And, um, I used to tell people marketing is to drive traffic. What you do from there forward is how you retain your customers. Mm. And so sales is, uh, is an art that you do to create relationships so that you can retain people, right? Mm. Marketing is just to get the people. And then what you do from there forward is all sales. Mm. So you do the multi-level marketing thing, you sucked. And then you said three years later, you were good. What changed? Um, a lot of mindset, you know, we, we all go through our education system and, um, I come from a a family that my parents built their lives from sweat equity and education, right? Mm -hmm. And they, um, they came, they came from um, below, below average means for sure. And so when you, even if you don't know that you've been brainwashed into what's been taught to us in school, you have been. Mm-hmm. And so we're our biggest enemies in success. Every, everything that we do, 99% of, uh, of our failures happen within our own internal mind. It's not what's out there that doesn't work. I went to a, a training called Journey Beyond Perception that I paid $3,000 to be in back in 1995. And, um, and when I got back from that training, my, my whole mindset changed. Mm. Um, and it was a training that took me back to childhood and it beat you up. And a lot of it was a uh, stuff that was old, old school, Tony Robbins stuff from Got way it. back in the day. And, um, it was perspective that changed. That's the only thing that changed was perspective on mm. money. Wow. So I don't want to go too much into multi-level marketing, but one thing I've noticed is it seems to me like a lot of guys, cause how old are you? I'm 49. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the guys I know that are like, let's say mid forties to mid fifties, we're in multi-level marketing in this entrepreneur space at yeah. one point, you know, it's like, and they'll never talk about it. You know, Patrick, Ben David, Ed Milet, you're talking about it right now. There's other guys, right. And like, if you ask them, like, it's not like they'll deny it. It's like, yeah, you know, it's just, it, it is what it is, or they'll call it something different, but it is, it, you know, it's multi-level, multi-level marketing, market. right? Yeah. So why do you think it was so big back then? And then did it, did it have a negative connotation that it has today? It's already has a bad connotation from, from the old Amway days of being like illegal pyramid schemes, but Amway's still around, right? <laughs> dude, like, the Amway guys are the funniest. Dude, it's, it, oh man, it's funny. I've got a mentor. They're 29 and they've, they've already made it. They're financially free. Yeah, I'm like, what are they talking 20, about? I'm sitting back going 20, I'll, I'll hear people that I'm retired. I'm 24 years old and this retired me. And I'm going, shit, man, I'm about to turn 50. Like, <laughs> I'm not, dude, I'm I'll never grinding. retire. You know, yeah. uh, I was reading, uh, I was reading the story about the owner of, um, of treasure Island. Um, I was, in, I was getting intrigued, you know? So I was, 
I was reading um, his story and I was like, shit, man, this guy, he's in his, he's going to about to turn 90 and he's still at it, man. Yeah. And I was like, that's what keeps him alive though. Yeah. You know, he has a five-year-old, he has a, what? like a seven-year-old. Yeah. Bro. <laughs> that's <guy's> crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. 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 Now that's an extreme, bro. But, yeah. That's funny. But you know, um, but, but anyway, yeah, like you said, Amway's but, still around. Yeah. They're it, somehow it, still doing it. That gave me my foundation. I'll tell you, it, it, it opened my mind to a whole different world. And, um, and it actually built a lot of mental strength in me. And that's, what's been able to give me the resilience to do even what I'm doing today. Yeah. Because once, once you get past, once you like, once you get, you tip the, the needle and you get over the whole mindset thing, then making money's not hard. It's, yeah. it becomes a game, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, once, once it becomes a game and it becomes fun, um, you have choices, you know? So life's evolved, right? We've done a lot over the, the course of the last 25 yeah. years, 30 years that I've been self-employed. WealthCon's coming back to Vegas, January 8th to the 11th. Now, if you've been to our events, you know how epic they are. We have the best time, not only with just great content, great speakers, but we have a lot of fun with the after parties and the masterminds and everything else. And number one, it's probably the best networking opportunity in the entire game. We have over a thousand investors and entrepreneurs at each one, and this will be no different. In fact, this is gonna be my favorite WealthCon ever. We've got some amazing speakers coming, people like Tim Tebow, Thatch Nguyen, Gabrielle Lyon, the list goes on. It is going to be an epic event, and I wanna see you there. So if you're interested in attending, get your tickets now because they will not last. Go to wealthcon.org and get them today. Everyone knows that my favorite way to build wealth is through real estate investing. That's the reason that I started Wealthy Investor, where we've trained thousands of students. But here's the thing. I've noticed that so many people fail to get started in real estate because they're worried about the money. They don't know where they're going to get the money to buy a house or flip or handle their renovations and things like that. And so they just never get started. I want to change that. And that's why I created a brand new free course that goes over five different ways that you could buy houses without using any of your own money today. And I'm going to give you it completely for free. All you have to do is go to wealthyinvestor.com slash podcast. I've made it specifically for you. The moment you go to that link, you'll be able to go get access to it and learn how you could start buying houses today without any of your own money. And if you're somebody who already has a real estate business and who wants to scale, we want to help you too. You can click the link below and book a free strategy call with our team if that's you. Well, you know what's crazy is um, the general public would think multi-level marketing is like, whatever, it's a scam or this or that. And then the more I've been in business and the more I've met like good entrepreneurs like Ed or Patrick or yourself. And then I see that at some point um, they had this training, you know, in multi-level marketing or, you know, I just even look at today and I'm like, okay, well, people are building these downlines in, you know, solar and insurance and pest. It's all the same Same thing, thing. you know, EXP. They're all multi-level marketing and, you know, some have like, they don't have bad reps. It's just like, people just don't really understand it's the same thing. It's called direct sales. It, you know, it, it's building it's your relabeled. team. You're yeah. building your team. Yep. We used to call building our downline, right? Yeah. yeah. All it is is a corporate hierarchy, you know? Yeah. It's just, you know, where you have people that are at the top, they're making the most money. And then you have a dilution of sales and distributors that are down below you, but you're making revenue off of all of them. It's just the same as a, any type of corporate hierarchy that's out there. Yeah. You so. know, if you have sales managers getting an override on their sales team and yeah. it's all the same, same thing. Yeah. So that's why it's just funny to me when I hear people get tripped up about it. And I'm like, look, I don't have any multi-level marketing things except like within my own company, I guess. Right. Just with corporate hierarchy, but I'm not recruiting anyone to go do things for me. But then again, 
you know, you kind of are but because our, yeah, people affiliate my stuff and whatever else too. Yeah, we still are though. You know, yeah. and I, I take all that training because I utilize little bits and pieces. Like I was a grocery store manager um, when I was in high school, moving into college. And I was, uh, and I still take the found fundamental stuff of cash handling. And I used it in all my traditional businesses when we owned restaurants and when we've owned um, coffee shops and, and beauty salons and dance schools and everything else. Um, I've taken those fundamentals and I've utilized them. So just like with multi-level marketing, bro, we're still utilizing the fundamentals of what we've learned over the course of time. Yeah. So before we get into like how you got into new builds, you, you mentioned you were a sub, subway franchise owner. You just said, hey, we owned restaurants. Like, it all why, t- why'd you do all these different things? Uh, well, it, different reasons, right? This whole subway thing was more after the Ray Kroc model. It all kind of ties to the real estate. Um, the, the beauty salons and the subway stores directly tie to the 2008 recession and my ability to get through it. And so, um, the other stuff that we've done, like everybody else, Ryan, I mean, I, I have a shine. I, when I was younger, I had shiny objects and I was looking for a good business that made a ton of money with the least amount of work. And you know what I found That's out? That's the dream. Yeah, it's the dream. And I just found out over the course of doing this my whole life is that money comes from whatever you put energy into. Mm. I thought you were going to say, you know what I found out? Subway. That's the answer. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I wish, man. I, it, it deep in the back of my mind, I was going, man, I hope these things are simple. I hope they just crush it and I can just get rid of everything else. All you need is bre- bread, turkey, cheese, and you're good. A little bit of mayo and mustard. Yeah, just yeah, like yeah. it's the easiest business the ever. Basics. Yeah. I see how they sold so many. Yeah, but bro, they're, they're, they're not very profitable. Um, I mean, we would make, we would net about a million a year, but we had a lot of stores. So, but the average store made about 70,000 a year. How um, many stores did you have? We had, it, it, our biggest, we had 15 stores, 13 that we were running, two that we had offloaded on owner financing, but we had 15 stores that we ran and operated. Whoa. So, and we got into them in the 2008 recession because I was building retail ground up and my buildings went empty. Like we would, we would finish them and all the tenants were gone. You decided, I just got to fill them myself. Yeah, I had to fill them. So I put beauty salons and subway stores. And then when we, and then we would sell off the stores to other franchisees and keep the leases. Oh, but we, uh, so you were always like a real estate guy. You were just building businesses I for was, the I'm real estate. I'm more of a business guy, but I've, I've gotten labeled as a real estate guy over the years. And I still think of myself as just a just an ordinary entrepreneur, you know, I mean, I, I'll, I'll do what it takes to, to make a difference. It's just that the needle mover for me has been real estate. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the ground up game in construction. Um, bro, I've, I've wanted out of the business since I started it, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> all lots of like, I'm like, shit, I don't even know how I'm still here. Um, but it's been a blessing because nobody that I've, that I know has the diversified experience from the construction end to the real estate investing end to the brokerage side of it and everything internally. And it's been such an attribute to my uh, success in our business is um, all those moving pieces. And they came from really a necessity that I needed to have in order to have my business successful because I didn't have anything, right? So I didn't have no money to, so I would, I would, I would try to keep all my the money internal within the company. And so over the course of time, we just continued building and developing businesses from brokerage firms to construction companies, to development firms, um, to asset management firms, everything internally. Mm. And so now we do all of it, you know? So you guys are very vertically integrated on everything that you do. You guys are the construction, 
You guys are also the investors, the acquisition, the development team. Yep. You guys are the asset management once it's done. So you, yep. you literally monetize every bit of it. Yeah. Now we're outsourcing. So we're partner with like vertical street ventures. Um, they'll take care of the asset management in order to scale because internally you can only do so much when you get to a certain level as well. So strategic partners are important. Um, but until 2018, we kept hundred percent of it internal. Wow. Until, and then in 2018, but the difference is in a 2018, depending on how you valued our assets, we were probably worth between 25 and maybe $40 million, depending on how the assets were, were evaluated. And since then, we've, we've scaled our portfolio up to over $600 million. Mm. And so just over the last five years, and that's through strategic partnerships and allowing us to not just keep everything internal, but to bring in good partners and uh, that really specialized in those areas to help us grow. Yeah. So, so that's been integral. Where where are all the units being built at? Mostly Phoenix. I got stuff going up in uh, Washington State. Um, Tacoma. We started on the Tacoma, now Kirtland area. Um, I have some stuff in the Albuquerque Rio Rancho markets, which is uh, Rio Rancho is a, a sub market. It's like the Fort Worth of Dallas. It's okay. the uh, is it's the Rio Rancho is that to um, Albuquerque. So we have um, we have a lot of aerospace going in over there. So there's a lot of growth there, and then we have some stuff down in California. It's going in down in Desert Hot Springs area, but predominantly Phoenix area and uh, and now Albuquerque and then Washington State. Those are our three big areas. And you live in Albuquerque, right? I live just outside of Santa Fe. Okay. Uh, just outside of Albuquerque. And what made you pick Phoenix? Phoenix has been good to me. So we were doing construction in Phoenix um, when the market was uh, was down in the early 90s and on, on the rise. And then, when Fe- and then we left Phoenix in about 2004 because the market was so good at home. We didn't even need to go anyplace. But then when the market got crushed in 2008, we started buying a ton of distressed assets in Phoenix. And it just became um, a haven for investment for us in 2008, 9, 10, all the way to 2012. Yeah. You know what's interesting is like, obviously, buying real estate's one thing when you're investing in other states. But to also run a construction company in another state. What's that like? That's tougher. Um, you got, that's tougher. That's where the stress comes in. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm thinking like, dude, if I had to create my own company and hire and cruise versus yep. just hiring a GC who's local, who's already got it all. It's a lot of work. So we, th- and that's part of our growth in 2018. So now we're getting uh, general contractors. Seven J does a lot. Toll brothers is doing stuff for us. Got it. Um, and so now we're, and then we, uh, we had a GC in Washington state, but because of, of, uh, the, the downturn in the market with interest rates, we actually fired, we didn't fire him, but he got to an end point of our, of one of our projects and we onboarded our own superintendents, but I have a partner up there too. So my partner runs a lot of that. I make a, a pit stop about once a month up there and, um, and really usually kind of just create dust in, uh, everything that we're doing more so than anything. Um, but at home in New Mexico, I still GC a lot of our stuff. Really? Yep. So what does that mean when you say you still GC it? Like, what are you actually doing? So our, my company, we actually onboard the superintendents, the, the foremans, the employees, the staff, the whole nine yards. So we're doing the, the land entitlements, which we do on about a hundred, we do them on a hundred percent of our projects. Now, no matter where they are, we still do take, uh, the land entitlement side of the business internally. Cause we're good at it. We're good at the land entitlement side. We're great at getting the projects out of the dirt and getting through permits. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we even do that in alignment with our GCs, but then in, at home, we actually are the ones that are hiring the subcontractors. 
We're actually the ones that are sourcing the materials, the labor, everything. So are you like, what, what is your role as the business owner in all of this? Like, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? I spend time building a personal brand. <laughs> yeah. I spend more time doing a personal brand. So are you on anything. job sites and stuff? I am. I am. I still love that. That's what I love. I love yeah. being out there. Um, just by nature, I'd rather be outside and I'd rather be on the job sites. And if I get a chance to, and I'm out there, I'll even run transits with these guys and I'll still run grades with them and everything. What What is a transit and a grade? The, tr- the tripods with a little eye on it that oh. you see that like the survey guys on. Got it. And um, because we still run our concrete companies, we still have a full-time concrete company that's pouring concrete every day still. I heard concrete is lucrative. It's super lucrative. I won't get rid of it. I, I want to, but <laughs> it's so lucrative, I won't. You Why know? is concrete so much more lucrative than other um, trades? Um, the decorative side for us is what's extremely lucrative. So we do a lot of the decorative um, stuff. Just people's that, backyards and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, on the residential standpoint, but even on commercial, we get a lot of commercial stuff where... Uh, it's just really financially lucrative where a lot of trades, you might be working on a 10 to 15% margin. We'll work on a 30, 35% yeah, margin. Yeah, I've heard that. So, so it's, you know, we'll do, you know, we, for every million we bring in, you bring a few hundred thousand to the table yeah. that you take home. It's a good business. Yeah. So, Any 30% margin business, a good business. Yeah, it's a good business. And so that's what you, that's been your main thing for like 30 that, years. It's been our bread and butter. That's been our saving grace. That's, yeah. that's pulled us out of a lot of, um, weather times during the downturns of the real estate market because it's continued to cash flow. So we've been able to service debt with it. We've been able to grow with it. It's been, it has been our, our saving grace in business for sure. If you're a Christian entrepreneur or somebody who's interested in growing in their faith, I would love to invite you to one of our Wealthy Kingdom Bible studies that's going on nationwide. If you have no idea what it is, we just started the community earlier this year and we now have 50 Bible studies already happening. And we also have virtual group meetings. We have different mission trips and all these other retreats and things happening every single month. And I would love for you to be a part of it. So if you want to learn more about joining the community, we're actually in the process of becoming an official nonprofit. And so I would love to see you there contributing and helping us grow in the mission. So go to wealthykingdom.com. You can learn more about it today. And I can't wait to see you on one of the calls or in one of the Bible studies. You've been through a lot of recessions and ups and downs, little mini recessions. And um, I mean, you went through the great recession, the biggest one we've ever seen. Um, And then I would say like these last 18 months have been like a mini recession in my Mm -hmm. eyes. Um, COVID was a interesting thing. Yeah. Like how has it been? Like you just said, having that concrete business and having these other businesses is really what got you through them when the real estate couldn't. Yeah. I think people are always looking for an exit as I was. Um, we learn a lot over the course of time. There's, there's no substitution for experience. Um, you know, what's funny though, is I have friends that should have the experience that still make stupid decisions because they're still looking for an easy way out, even in their forties and fifties. And, um, I've, I've thank God that, um, I've been persistent and stubborn enough to keep the hard businesses because the hard businesses, which the concrete company is, um, has continued to pay. And so I always tell people, you know, and I, I said in front of the room the other day at the meetup, I said, look, the whole saying about what, when you do what you love for a living, you never work a day in your life. I always, I say, it's such a bullshit statement because the second you do what you love for a living, it becomes work and anything work that you're going to put time into it's hard. You know, there's going to mm-hmm. be ups and downs. There's gonna be good and bad. It's like marriage, you know, marriage. Yeah. Um, you look at people with a 50 year marriage and you admire it. 
but what else was involved in that 50 year marriage to get them there, you know? And so I, I always tell people just focus your energy on what's lucrative and stay focused on it. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. You know, there's going to be up times. There's going to be great markets where you cash flow great. And there's gonna be other times where your margins are smaller, but if you stay in it the long haul and you're doing something lucrative, it'll always give back in dividends. Yeah. You just got to figure out how to weather the storm. Yeah. That's it. How yeah. do you weather the storm? A lot of people are going through the storm right now. I would guess 80% of plus people in real estate are in the storm. Yeah, they are. Um, you got to be diversified too, though. You know, so I say stay, stay focused on it, but don't just, you got to have some diversification in what you do as well, because there's going to be, and I learned that in multi-level marketing. Uh, one of my mentors, he said, look, you know, you got, if you got 10 good distributorships, he said, you might have five that are mediocre and three that are crushing it and two that are just ho- having horrible months. But because you have 10, you know, you're, um, you're always okay. And so in business, I've always done that. So we've always had, I've never had just one business. We've always had a multitude of businesses at any given time. So when you tell a story and you go, I thought you like in 1998, I thought you were just doing concrete. Yeah. But we were also figuring out the ground up game. We were building a house at that time. You're testing. Yeah. We're testing stuff, right? You weren't great at it yet, but no. you're figuring it out. Yeah. We're figuring it out. We're going to see what, what's lucrative. Do and we, they, do then we they kind of aligned doing? already. You, you had some yeah. experience to be able to, you weren't trying a whole new thing. Sometimes we were, I mean, like in 2000, we bought our first building. I was like, okay, I got space and I got everything else leased. Let's open a coffee shop. Right. Yeah. So, so that was new. That was interesting. <laughs> well, how'd that go? <laughs> it actually didn't go bad. We were making about 30 grand a year and then 30 year, grand a year. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah, you sit back, you're like 30 grand a year. Like I make that in a day. Um, but back in, in 2000, you're like, okay, it ain't costing me money. It's making a little bit. It's not worth my time, but we're making 30 grand a year. So I said, so instead of giving up on it though, I said, okay, we need more of them. And so I landed up opening four of them. And actually when we opened up four, we actually landed up making more money. And it even helped the one that was only making 30 grand a year get up to like 80 grand a year, which it wasn't great, but it was still, you know, it was still making more money. Yeah. Um, and we landed up, and what I landed up doing was I'd sell, sold them off like you do a piece of real estate. So you take them with a $30,000 investment, you sell them for 180,000 a piece. You made, you didn't make a lot of money on the business, but after just a few years, we still ended up exiting them for a profit. Yeah. You know? So you like selling these like small little retail businesses. That's what it sounds like. They, what would happen is I don't think it was that I, I, I liked selling them. I liked the fact that I wanted, I wanted out of them because they weren't very lucrative. Yeah. And I was able to exit them at a profit. Yeah. So it just became a way, an exit strategy more than anything. And to me, any, you just got to make a profit doing anything that you're doing. Like if I put my time into it, okay, I'm like, how do I get an ROI that even just remotely makes sense? Otherwise I feel like I've wasted all my time. Yeah. You sound like me in that I'm willing to take a win. Like I've always had a flipper mentality of like, Hey, yeah. there, there will be more. Like I ain't worried about that. Cause there are yeah. some people who are like, I'm never selling anything. And then I would say I'm on the other end of the spectrum where I'm like anything is for sale. You know, if, if there's the right price, if there's the right situation, if it's no longer an opportunity that serves me, you know, let's keep moving. Yeah. And I'm the same way. And it, it, what it really comes down to is uh, the freedom of my time, because if it consumes my time, my talents are better used elsewhere where I can be more profitable and lucrative doing something better, fina- financially more affluent, you know, yeah. than, than something that's tying my time down. That's not as lucrative. So, but yeah. So how are you treating these ground up? Are you treating them like, Hey, we want to, cause I have friends who are doing a lot of ground up at like really big scale and you know, they raise hundreds of millions of dollars to build. And because they have investors, they must exit. 
yeah. within the next five years and get the investors to the principal and a return back. Um, is your plan similar or are you trying to hold them for a long time? How's your structure? We hold everything. Okay. Yeah. So we're, ours is different. So let me, let me, I'll kind of just in a nutshell, just throw it out at you uh, what we're doing. So I started doing the big ground up game. When I say big, we're doing nothing that we build is under a hundred units. Everything is, you know, now is really over 200 units. And so when we go in, our, our builds are 50 to $70 million builds. And our whole business model is to buy the land and we raise capital to buy the land. Okay. Then we entitle the land and we collateralize it. Now, the last two years have changed our business model a little bit where we have had to give a little bit of equity away, but we hadn't been giving any equity away. What we've been doing is just raising debt from our investors for the land. Mm-hmm. And we go get our construction loan because of the value we bring through the land entitlement. So if we paid $2 million for a piece of land. Once it's entitled for 200 units, that land might be worth $6 million. Mm-hmm. So then we might have to raise a little bit of a capital reserve, um, interest for interest reserve. And um, we might have to raise a small amount um, to fulfill our 80% loan to cost to build it. But we also go to the bank with a retail budget. So we just have to show the liquidity um, to the banks. And then we're able to collateralize the land as part of our equity. And then we go in and build the asset. And uh, then once we stabilize it, um, everybody's exited out on, on our debt investors, no equity investors. And I keep hundred percent of my assets. Mm. And so I've been doing that forever. Yeah. You know? So the last two years is the first time that we've given a little bit of equity away only because of the market. And it Just changed. because it's harder to raise money. It's hard to raise money, but it also kept our build safe too. So my whole, my whole, you, you got to, there's a level of greed that goes into things. And I think it, it kills people sometimes too. So I could have been extremely selfish and said, and stubborn and said, I'm going to continue raising debt, but the debt was so expensive. It really put a, a high liability stake on my builds. So you sit back and go, okay, do I just stay stubborn in spite of, of uh, knowing that it's going to be a high liability or do I just say, okay, let me relinquish a little equity, give some, give out a little bit and distribute a little bit of equity and still make profits because our profits are still lucrative and continue going, like continue moving, right? Yeah. Because otherwise it like halts and bottlenecks everything mm-hmm. because yeah, capital is harder to raise and um, the projects do become a lot more um, high risk when we're taking on so much debt at a very expensive price. And so, um, so taking on equity investors, I don't, it, it dissolves the debt liability and I'm able to just continue building and then they get paid on the back end like I do. Mm-hmm. So we we did change the business model a little bit, but now with interest rates going back down, we're hoping that we can get back to our normal business model here sooner than later. Why, what do you think about, I guess at scale, right? Cause like, how are you raising money now? I'm sure it's just like mom and pop friends, family. No, I, you know, I never did 506B. I never did syndications under friends and family except for once. And it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> and so we, uh, and before, now this year, we're doing it again. Okay. But, um, be, but prior, we got away from it because there was a six-month threshold that once we did a 506B, I couldn't do a 506C with uh, accredited investors. And it, re- it really put a hindrance in our ability to raise capital. And the small mom and pop investors that come to the table with fifty dollars to $100,000, God bless their hearts. I love them, right? Cause it, but it, uh, it takes a long time to raise $9 million with $50,000 at a time. Yeah. It's a lot of phone calls, a pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, and that's where I've partnered with people too, because I, I have a threshold of, uh, of a, an ability to raise capital. And there's people that have, um, there's other multifamily syndicators that 
they have a bucket of investors that makes it a lot easier. So if I can just build them and I can put the bucket of capital raise on them and give a third of my asset away to somebody that raises capital, I can do three times more development than I can on my own. Right. So it just makes sense financially to do it that way. So I've done that over the last uh, five years. Okay. So, and that's kind of what I was getting at. So how are you rate? Are you just basically um, pushing out your capital raising to all these other guys now? Are you trying to even raise yourself anymore? We still do our webinars. And so what we'll do is we'll bucket out some um, to them and we'll do a webinar. And since we're partners, it doesn't bother me that we actually mix our pot of investors because we're doing so much stuff together. So yeah. You'll just go into it. Like regardless of what each of us raise, this is what yeah. it's going to be. Think, look at like Trump, you know, just cause it has Trump's name on it. He doesn't own the vast majority of those. No, he'll take 30%, 20%, 10% of them brand his name. And there's an investment group behind that. That actually is, is a lot of people that are getting wealthy behind that. And so we've kind of adapted a very similar model where yes, we are, the, uh, the brains and the, and the uh, driving force behind it. But in scale, we can do so much more if we have resources. So we'll, uh, we'll market it. We'll do a webinar um, and use the personal brand. That's the whole point behind my personal brand is to be able to raise capital. Okay. And, um, and then I, let, I leave it up to a couple strategic partners that I have to lure those people in um, and educate them on the entire business model. And, uh, and bring in the capital for us. Mm. So, so, you know, there's the, I'll just give you like my story. So when I first started out, you know, I was the same way. All I did was raise debt and, you know, I was mainly flipping houses though. So it's a little yeah. bit different. Um, and all I did was raise debt to flip houses. And then, you know, I started buying rentals and single family and I just ran the same process. I'm like, Hey, instead of flipping it, I'm just going to refi and burr it, you know, yeah. here and investors never cared. Um, and then I started raising for multifamily and, you know, I saw that, okay, well, if you want people's money for five years, 10 years, it's much harder to raise than for a flip. Yeah. Um, because it's just like, it's, even though the upside could be greater, you know, having liquidity tied up that long is a harder sell than, Hey, I just need your liquidity for three months, six months. Yeah. Whatever. It is. Um, and so I started to understand, well, because here's my mindset. When you're used to getting 100% of the deal and you're just raising debt, you're like, wait a minute, why are all these guys doing like 80-20 and the investors are getting 80%? We're doing all the hard work. Yep. And I never understood it for a long time until I just started to understand scale and why they do it. And it's like, yep. okay, I now understand why they do it because if you ever wanted to do 100 million plus a year, you're raising at 80, 20, you could raise mom and pop and everything else at, you know, whatever you're, you're able to do, but at scale, it's almost impossible not to. Yeah, it is. And we still, we don't, we don't give, I've never given that much away. Mm -hmm. um, we, but it's because we bring so much value on the back end. We're able to do that, which most people don't have the skill sets. And that's what experience has done for us. Um, fortunately enough, we, we, you know, I've, I've never given more than 50% away of any of my developments. And that's on the high end. Let me, let me play devil's advocate. Obviously as a developer, you make fees in a lot of ways, right? Yep. I mean, you can make your development fee, your management fees, your acquisition fees, all these different fees, right? Would you be better served 
doing 80, 20, but doing 10 X the volume and still making your fees on 10 X the stuff. We don't, because we, the way we partner with them, I don't even, we don't even charge each other's fees. No, I know. But at that point you would. Yeah. Yeah, we would. Yeah. If we did that, if we would definitely, um, you have to at that point. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Because then you can't run your infrastructure in your office otherwise, you know, and that's the thing with why we don't now is because we have so much upside on internally is that we can still afford to run our, our infrastructure of staff, you know, without, yeah, because you get all the upside. Yeah. Because we have the upside. So we don't have the need. Um, but, but it's, it's business just like anything. So once we give away that much in scale, um, that fees are, they're necessary. They're necessary that you have to, you can't afford infrastructure, you know, yeah, to be able to run the machine. So do you think that, I mean, have you ever like tried to do the math where you're like, you know what, we're going to buy, we're going to build $50 million this year. What if I was able to raise way bigger and do 500 million? And what if I charged 1% here and 1% there? And, yeah, you know, I got 20% of the exit. Like, what would I, but, you know, obviously you're dealing with way more work and everything too. So, you know, it's like, could you even handle, or do you even want to handle that much? Yeah. So we, I've thought about it and we've ran some numbers, just real, real soft underwriting numbers. Yeah. And I'm in a different place than most people right now. So I, I've been at this game for 30 years, right? So now like what's important to me is the promises I made to my wife and the promises I made to my wife. Cause my wife's like, she's just seen me work forever. And she, you know, she knows I love the game, but my kids are getting ready to go to college here in the next few years. My son in two years, my, my daughter in, in five years. And so she goes, I just want to be able to have the freedom and flexibility, not be tied down to an office and the employees and everything. I want to be able to pick up and go where, whenever, where our kids go to college, where we, um, wherever they're living, we want to be able to have houses and just have the resources um, of time and not the resources financially, but time to be able to do that. And if, and if I, if I bog myself down where I have all this infrastructure that I've had my entire career, then I fail what's most important. And that's my wife, our family and the, and the real goals mm-hmm. of making all this money. Right. Um, because the game's great. I love it, but I want to do it remote. And if that means that I got to give up a little bit of the growth in order to do that, I'm willing to do that mm-hmm. at this point. We've made a lot of money. We're, we're good. Like I don't have to work. I, I love the game. Yeah. And I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. So, I, um, for, and that's the whole point of the wealthy way podcast, right. Is to, to help people see that, right. That it's yeah. not just about top line revenue or even bottom line. It's like, yeah. yo, what, why are you even starting the business you're starting? What are you like? Yeah. What's your real priority? What's yeah. your real goal? People don't even know. No, they don't. And so like, is my goal to be a billionaire? We could drive this to a billion dollar business easy, you know, real easy. But do I want that much workload on myself in my fifties is the real question. You mm-hmm. know? Is it worth, is the sacrifice that I have to do to get there worth, worth it? And we may grow there anyways. You know, I just, I kind of let, there's a level of faith you got to put into everything, right? And if you're doing the right things, I believe that God's going to just kind of take you in the direction you got, you, that you should be going. Um, because I've always been a hard worker. Now it's, it's, it's easier when you work hard and diligently to say that than for somebody that doesn't do what they're supposed to be doing. They're not, they haven't put in the time or energy. God's not just going to hand it to you, right? Like it's just not going to fall in your lap. Mm-hmm. So I say that because I know the work I've put in and I know the business that we built and I know the direction we're going. So some of that may happen anyways, um, just out of what we're already doing, but it's not my goal. You know, my goal is more about like, okay, like I want to, I want to make sure one, my wife is happy, but two, I want what she wants. You know, I want to be with my kids. 
Like, yeah. It doesn't make sense otherwise. How like, long have you guys been married? Uh, we've been married for 17 years. We've been together for 25. And how has she been throughout the journey? She's been great. You know, we have ups and downs like anything. There's times where things are stressful mm-hmm. and um, she feels like what we do sometimes has been um, a little selfish at times because she knows what we've been able to do. But then she also understands it. When, so when she feels frustrated with it, it's monetary and it's, it's like she's human, like everybody, right? Um, but she's been very supportive mm-hmm. over the course of time, you know, and she's, um, and she gets it, you know, she, uh, but she, she, like everybody rides on emotion, um, like we all do at certain points in time. So we, like any marriage, we have our, our good days and bad days, but predominantly good days. I got a good wife. Yeah. I mean, for to stick with you for twenty five years. Oh, stick with me. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> for all these for all these crazy ideas, and I mean, obviously, it's not going to be all uh, roses and all that stuff. Yeah, it never is. Yeah, but yeah, you you do you go through ups and downs, you know. And we've been blessed, you know. We and the concrete company has given us that. Um, we've always had money, so we haven't struggled in a financial point. Does she work in the business, or what, what's her involvement? She runs the kids mostly, okay. um, but I need mean, to some level she all wives will be a part of the business to some magnitude. Right. Um, so she helps me. And so when you say she work in the business, yeah, to a, uh, to a certain degree, because without her, um, she'll do stuff that a personal assistant won't and can't do for you, you know? Yeah. So there's always a level that they work in the business, even though she isn't like in there every day, yeah. she's, she's in there every day. Yeah. You know? Well, I'll tell you so, like for me, I'm I'm very fortunate to have my wife Mindy. We just celebrated ten years of marriage. That's awesome. And she's been with me from the beginning, just like your wife has been with you. You know, before we ever had money or anything, we were broke. And it's interesting because she has always supported whatever I've wanted to do, right? But she has also been there to I want to say be like that that needed governor. You know, like how cars and golf carts and things have governors to like yeah. make sure it doesn't like go crazy and just yeah burn up and destroy yeah. itself. She's always been there for me to be like, hey, you know, let's not do that. And let's just focus on what's important. Yeah. Let's spend time together. Let's spend time with the kids. Let's leave. Yeah. Let's do this. And that's been really good for me because it's like helped me develop in who I am today. And also too, yeah, 100%. it's allowed me to get better at business where I'm like, hey, you know what? how do I do both? Like, how do I still grow, yeah. but still do these things that are important to me, to my wife, to my kids. And, um, there's just this thing on social media that I see sometimes with entrepreneurs where they're like, Hey, you know, if your spouse or your girlfriend doesn't like support you 1000% and your goals, and they can't deal with you working 80 hours a week, then you need to like, let them go. And That's I'm like, crazy. you dumb. are an idiot. Yep. Um, so, so and every time I hear that advice, I don't care who's saying it. You know, it could be the most uh, big person. I'll be like, you're an idiot. You're a fool. You don't yeah, get it. 100%. You yeah. don't. No, because my wife's the same way. I mean, even this weekend, she um, she was worried about a couple things that um, little projects with the people. She just doesn't like the people. She she has like, <laughs> she has a, wives have a different, they're keen on stuff and they, they relate different people to different experiences that we've had in different partnerships or yeah. She's like, this reminds of me of that. Yeah. And, and, and they, they bring that to your attention. So in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, you, I better watch certain parameters of this. If I, if I do go down that street, but they do. And even like with the kids, when you come home tired or whatever it is, um, they help govern a lot, you know, 
if you're on, if I'm on the kids too hard yeah, yeah, or just whatever, but yeah, 100%. Cause I even do that with her too, you know, cause it's just different personalities and we get each other. So even the kids where they don't understand mom's personality, sometimes you have to tell the kids, Hey, that's just the way mom is. Right. Like, um, she's not like dad that I will get in your face and tell you what's wrong. And then two seconds later, I'm cool. You know, she's going to wear it for a while. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a matter of, of telling her, Hey, you can't do that to the kids. Like you've done that to me. It's hard. They don't get it. Right. And then she does the same back. And so I think a little bit of that give and take from both ends is mm-hmm. important throughout a course of any marriage. Yeah. yeah. And I just want people to hear that because right now there's probably some entrepreneurs listening who are like, man, if my spouse just supported me more, I'd be doing it. And my advice to you is no, you'd be doing it if you actually did what you're supposed to do. Right. That's right. You know, your spouse, you don't need this unwavering support from your spouse. If you haven't done anything yet, you know, like, do you think that Mindy supports me because of, um, just happy go lucky support and like, no, it's, it's from over time having success, having success, failing and bouncing back, dealing with it, continuing to just push forward that now. Yeah. Do you think her faith and her trust in me is much higher today than it was 10 years ago when I first started? Absolutely. Like, Track record and resume proves that. So if like you've been, I call it in baseball, we call them slap dicks. Just people that just, just do stupid crap all the time. Like, man, I can't believe why is all this bad stuff happening to me? Why does nobody trust me? Why does nobody believe? Because you're a slap dick. Why would anyone believe in you? So change yourself and then maybe your spouse will support you more. They didn't just not support you out of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the biggest problem. Like when, when you get clients, like even they come in and they, you're, you're teaching them what you do and they're, they go, well, I got to check with my wife. The reason they have to check, like out of respect, my wife would expect me to at least talk to her about it. Right. Like I just won't go do it, but I don't need my wife's approval because yeah. she, she believes in me. Like, I don't have to sit back and go, can I do it? And the reason that a lot of men, I think, have to do that is because they, time and time again, they've spent, they've spent, they've spent, but, and, they've, and they've never executed. They've never had any level of success because they've never went to the finish line with anything. Yep. So my, my wife knows, like, if I do something, I'm going to the finish line with exactly. it. Exactly. You know? And my wife also knows, too. She doesn't hear me throw out just crazy things. No. Like, she knows that if I've come to something and a conclusion and it's she's like, bad. all right, she's, he's thought about this and- yeah. This is not something out of the blue. Like he's going to do it and yeah. I, I can't really even stop him. So I might yeah. as well support him. Yeah. When I started, when I said I was going to go build $70 million ground up um, buildings, I, I didn't like happen overnight. I told, I studied it. She saw me, you know, she saw me studying it and she saw me um, investing time on Saturday mornings when everybody was asleep and I'm waking up at 6 a.m. while everybody's sleeping until eight, nine o'clock. And I'm studying that stuff. And it took me two years to really, from 2016 to 2018, to really figure out like how to do it. So I took, it takes, it took time and everybody wants it like overnight. And then I built one and it took another two years. I worked for four years for free before I made a dollar but I was moving in that direction. It was methodical. You know, I had a business plan. I had a business model. I knew what I was doing, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden people go, okay, he had instant success. Yeah. I built a $70 million. It took me four years to figure out how to do it. Yeah. You know, and I, but I got it. Yeah. You know, it took some time. Mm-hmm. So. No, that's so true. So let's talk about just the ground up game, right? So the first step is identifying land and entitling. Walk me through what exactly that means. 
Finding land or titling? Both. Both. So finding- Because obviously you got to like be looking for land that you know you can- That's the hard part entitle. for the for the level of construction that we're doing. That's the hard part for yeah. us. Um, that's probably the hardest out of anything that we do is sourcing the right piece of land. So that comes down to um, relationships. Um, we get all our this stuff. When we finally find stuff, we're out there. So you got to plant seeds. You have to be in it. And um, I always I always explain like harvesting a garden, right? Like you throw down a bunch of seeds, but not every seed- um, harvests for you, right? Um, you gotta, you gotta be out there playing the game at its highest level. And when I started in this part of the game, I was meeting with multifamily brokers, um, all over in every city that I wanted to, uh, that I thought I wanted to uh, develop in, I was meeting with them and I would, I nurtured relationships and I didn't even do business with these guys for multiple years, but I was, I would go into town. Um, they, I would share with them the success of other projects that I was doing that were similar, um, that they had no financial gain in. And I just built relationships. So sourcing land has been, I've used um, my social media uh, as a tool where I put out there what I'm looking for. So mm-hmm. I've, I found stuff in the most random places and um, I'm always throwing, I'm always selling my business model out there and everything I do to brokers at lunches at, at, for coffee. Um, anytime I have free time, I, I don't make sure, sh- I make sure that that time isn't free. I make sure that that time is used um, when I'm traveling, like even now, right? Like if I'm going to stay here, I'm going to do this podcast. I schedule another podcast and I'm just going to make the best use of my time. Mm-hmm. So I do that with my contacts. Um, so I, I will go into, a t- into town and if I have a little gap, I'll sit down with one of my brokers. And if I, I don't use it where I'll sit down and do stuff behind a, a notebook I can do in the office, it's relationships. Mm-hmm. So then and it's paying attention to what's coming in, right? So, so when something comes, you got to be able to underwrite and recognize that it's good. 90% or better is horrible what comes to us. But then when something comes in recognizing and don't, the only way that that's going to happen is by underwriting stuff. And people feel like it's a waste of time, but we will sit down and I will, I will understand this stuff inside and out and forward and backwards. So when a deal comes to my table, I don't miss it because if you're not underwriting, you're not looking at this stuff. How do you recognize when you really have something that you need? Right? So sourcing the deal, um, that's how we source our deals. And when they come, we know when we need to execute timely and effectively. Yeah. You know what I found about commercial real estate? That's tough because commercial real estate's new to me. I've been in it now for a little less than three years. Um, I was mainly focused obviously on single family, specifically yep. flipping and wholesaling. And what's clear is it is a relationship game in it the is. commercial space. And I like it and I don't like it because there's no like quick way to get in. There's not. You know, because like me- being such a good marketer, I'm like, oh, dude, I'll, I can take over this market. Like, let's just, we're going to do X, Y, Z. I know exactly how to blast it every way you could market. Yep. And I could go take over a market in like lots of industries if yeah. I wanted to with my skills. But commercial real estate is not like that. You don't go direct to <laughs> seller, really. Like, yep. it's, it's all broker-based and they all got relationships that have been for years and years built. Now, obviously having a social media following it helps gives me a big edge, it right? Does. If I, if I actually want to go take the time to build the relationship but that, then again, it's a lot of work and I got other things I could do. Yeah. Well, and, uh, that's why we still do a little bit of residential. That's why I still do a few ground up residential every year because that stuff just keep, I'm able to pull those out of the ground, even through what we went through with high interest rates over the last few years. Uh, I've, I've continued building single family homes because we'll make a quarter million dollars. And if I do five or six of those a year, I'm making over a million dollars, just building a few homes and they don't take a lot of time. That's just you like 
Building your ground up home, flipping it. Yeah, yeah. just building it and just selling it. You know, so it's, it, we've been doing that since 1999 and it's been, it took us through the 2008 recession. That's how we bought our subway stores cash. That's how we were able to buy real estate in Phoenix at a time when our cash flow from our business was low. Um, we just, we just adjusted the business model a little bit, took a little slower profits, but we continue profiting. Yeah. And so having that, that tool on the residential end has been advantageous in so many ways. It isn't just the concrete company. It's that diversification because the concrete company continues to cash flow, but you need some large wins in that to, to have big gains too. So when you get a quarter million dollars um, out of a house and you have two or three of them sell, you know, now you can start moving some mountains a little bit. When you have half a million quarter, three quarters of a million dollars, you can, you can go tie up a $2 million piece of commercial land to turn it into a $5 million, $6 million piece of commercial land. And then you can collateralize into a 20, 30, $40 million development. Yeah. You see? So it, it, they're all tools, right? And I, I, I look at everything that we do like a toolbox and you don't get a crescent wrench and build a house with a crescent wrench, right? But you need it at some point in time. Um, same thing, you can't build a house with just a hammer or just a saw. You need a little bit of all of it. So I look at everything that we do as tools, but in the commercial space, that's what really is going to has set us up with passive income. That's real passive income, you know, that, um, you know, we, and it, and it pays in so many different ways. Um, it keeps us tax, it keeps us from paying uh, income taxes. It helps us with our cash out refis. Where we get big wins, but then the cash flow on the back end, we just keep them and they just continue to generate revenue for us month, month after month. Yeah. So I did a presentation at my last WealthCon where I just talked about how 2023 was a really difficult year in real estate for me. Yep. Um, just because I had so many house flips that ended yep. up losing money. And the, I just basically went through, Hey, here's how, you know, I got through it and how I was able to. Yeah, that stuff is great though for people to hear. Yeah. I talk about wins and losses. If I make a boatload of money, you're going to hear about it. Yeah. If I take a fat punch in the face, you're going to hear about it. We, we've all done it though, man. And like 2023 wasn't a great year for me. I, I started off the year saying, I'm going to do $160 million worth of development this year. We got 27 million out of the ground, mm-hmm. which, you know, we still made money. Right. So, um, but it's going to all come now in 2024, just banking sucked, you know, like I just couldn't, we, we had projects. A lot of was, things you can predict. Yeah. You know, so we just, we, to be smart, we didn't push it. Um, we, we push as hard as we can push. And then you have to let the external circumstances really help you adjust to what you're doing. And so we, we're going to be busy this year in 2024. It's going to yeah. be an extremely busy. That's what I see for us bu- too. Busier than I want to be, but, but Hey, you know, it's going to be a recovery of what we couldn't push forward through in 2023. Yeah. Still a successful year. We got a lot done. We cleaned up our projects. We made a lot of um, financial decisions to, uh, to really make our projects more profitable in mm-hmm. 2024, which we wouldn't have done. We would have just built them and then we would have figured out. Figured it out after. We always do, you know? Yeah. That's just the way it goes. When you're busy, yeah. you just do that. Yeah. But I was able to clean up. Like I took a whole interior corridor, four-story, um, 208-unit development, and I made it um, open air, took it all out because I was I had time to think about my NOI. I had time to think about um, the stabilization of how we're, we're going to be paying. And I and since we weren't turning dirt, I made the architects go to work, cost me a few thousand bucks, but it'll save me thousands and make me millions over the course of time. Yeah. And um, and so we were able to do stuff like that. So I still made good use of my time. Yeah. And I'm just going to make our projects even better because we're going to keep these forever. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, it's, some, some years just don't go the way you think they're going to go. You know, you yeah. just, just got to keep pushing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the one thing I did, and I'll link that presentation down below, guys, so you can watch it after. But the one thing I talked about was, you know, the biggest lesson I learned on how I got through it was that in real estate, you got to have different cash conversion cycles on just all these different things you're doing, right? Because like whenever I look at developers, I'm like, dude, that is a risky business. Just like, you know, you, you, you get a deal and then you don't really get paid for five years. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, how do these guys like pay the bills every month? And then if there's a downturn and they got to keep getting the next deal, the next deal. And then by the time you're, you're, it's year five, hopefully thing is paid off. And I was like, look here for me anyways, the, the only reason we got through it was, all right, you know, I just had all these different cash conversion cycles happening at once. And so it was like, okay, you got these flips and you know, these were bought at a totally different time before rates happened. And now by the time they convert, it's not looking too great. And that is what yeah. it is. I'm going to have to just wear it. How am I going to offset it? Well, I better get really good at wholesales innovations to bring in the cash. That's going to cover the loss. Yeah. Right. Um, thankfully too, you know, I'd built up a rental portfolio and it's like, all right, which rentals can I sell that have got some equity? Okay. This one's got a few hundred thousand. Let's sell that. Yeah. Let's sell this. You know, you sell off a few of your, you know, nest eggs yeah. to cover the loss. And cause it's like, look, I can accumulate rentals whenever I want. It's yeah. not a huge deal. Like what's even the point of having them at the end of the day? Like I ain't living off cash flow from them. Yeah. You know, they're just, they've appreciated yeah. so much and they were tax things. So anyways, you, uh, you know, you do things like that. You get good at wholesale, you get good at innovations and creative finance stuff. Um, you know, and I just basically walked them through. I was like, Hey, the shortest cycle in real estate would be wholesale. You know, the next would be in wholesale. You get paid next week. Yeah. You know, a flip, let's just say it's three to six months. Um, a rental, let's say if you're really going to cash out, you're looking a couple of years, a development is five plus years, you know, same thing with apartments. You're not selling them next year. Like the, those are like your long horizon. But like you said, if you have just these big pops that keep coming yeah. along the way, cause you keep planting the seeds of big pops and a big pop would be a rental property from five years ago, yeah, an apartment, a development, uh, a new build house flip. Um, all of a sudden you start getting these big pops and you're like, all right, cool. Like that was nice. Yeah. Cause we, like, we got a phone call from the, from one of our lenders and he goes, you guys need to show $5 million of additional liquidity. And I go, so we just need to show $5 million of liquidity or $5, <laughs> 5 million additional. I was like, cause we already have the 5 million more. And he goes, no, five additional million more. And I was like, by when? He's like, well, be nice to show it in the next 30 days. Right. So me and a partner, we're like sitting back, okay, where do we get $5 million of liquidity? So we creatively are able to get $5 million worth of liquidity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from big pops like that. So I'm like, you know what? This project is supposed to end in March, but let's see if we can push it to get it out of it. Even if I have to take a little bit of a shavings off of it and sell it by January and um, we start freeing up capital. Right. And so we've built that over the course of time, obviously it, that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most people can't just free up $5 million in 30 days. No, but um Especially in real estate. Yeah, especially in real estate. Like you want to go sell stock. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, you yeah. can. Well, in, in the stock is considered liquidity, you know, if you have it. You yeah, know, yeah. If you have a, and, and I actually use stocks as a tool for real estate. Um, so I, that's actually part of my liquidity is my stocks. Mm, explain um, that. Yeah, so I, so, and this has been a great tool for me. Um, the banks love it. 
Um, I'll, I'll invest in stocks. I only, I only buy big blue chip stocks and I only buy dividend paying stocks. Um, and the reason why is because I'll leverage my capital sometimes on my stocks. I'll get a, a quick loan on it to buy a piece of land or, and I'll, uh, I'll leverage a line of credit against my stocks. And, um, which traditionally would cost me about 5%. Now it's about seven and a half percent. Um, but, it, but I've been on since 2001 on average, I make about 11 to 12% a year on my stocks. And part of that is that I'll do anything between a two and 6% dividend and plus whatever the up upright is. You yeah, know? yeah. And so we'll, uh, I'll buy stuff like Johnson and Johnson when they were in the lawsuit with talcum powder. And now I'm just riding that sucker up. Um, I just bought a bunch of Boeing for sake of example. Um, there's two large uh, plane manufacturers in the world, Boeing being one of them. They're not going any place. They're taking a government um, bailout right now. So they're not paying dividends, but they traditionally pay a dividend. We'll get that dividend. But there's only one way for that stock to go over the course of time because they've taken such a beating and that's up. Um, we'll invest in like Walmart and, and stuff like that. And, um, and so if I have five to $6 million in the stock market, I can just uh, show that is my liquid capital because mm-hmm. it can be sold. I own it um, as long as I don't have it leveraged with a loan against it at that yeah, time. Yeah. And if I do need to leverage it, I can. And then I just pay it back on a short-term note. Like if I need to buy a piece of land and I have this like nine months of entitlement, I might leverage a couple million dollars to get the land. If, I, if it's something that I have to close on quicker, it's mm-hmm. a good deal. Yeah. And then um, as soon as it's entitled and I go in for a construction loan, I'm able to put that money back in. I get the money back from the bank and I replace that money, put it back in the stock market. Mm-hmm. And now I have, I leverage it from debt from the bank. Yeah. So I'll use it like that instead of getting investor capital or I'll use it and then get investor capital. And then I take the investor capital, replace it, put my money back and I put, use the investor's capital. Yeah. You know, so I'll do that stuff like that as well. So I use the stock market because I love having several millions of dollars available to my at my disposal at any point in time, because you just never know when that right, the right deal is going to come to the table. Mm-hmm. And, and plus my money's working for me two ways. So I'm double dipping on my, on the same capital. You're treating it like a line of credit, but it's also appreciating and it's also appreciating and, value and what, dividends. Yeah. And what I do at the end of the year is my stock guy calls me at the end of the year and he goes, Hey, and he calls me more like October, November. And he says, Hey, do you have to offer off, um, offset any, um, capital gains? And if I do, and even if I don't, I say, I'll take any tax write-offs I can get. Yeah. And so if something's not performing, which there's always something that's not yeah. performing. You'll do the tax loss harvesting. We sell it. Yeah. Yeah. We sell and we'll offset the capital gains against something else. Yeah. You know, and then repurchase it 30 days later. Or like I, well, we were in Exxon Mobil and I just, and I purchased something else in, in oil and gas, you know? Mm. So we'll use it in the same, I'll sell it and then buy something the next day that in oil and gas that's, that's uh, going up. Mm. If there's a loss. No, super smart. So going back to the land. So you're looking for these deals and you're underwriting them and everything else. Like walk people through the process. You said, Hey, it might take nine months to entitle it. Like what exactly does that mean? So typically I won't even buy the land. I'll tie it up. And like, I'm doing one right now. So I'll use the one I'm doing right now as an example. Um, It's called my Siebel Loop project. It's a 185 unit apartment complex that I'm doing in my own hometown. Uh, One of the first projects I've done in my own hometown in years. And um, it's a prime piece of real estate on the West side of town. Like in the only, and what got it for me was my social presence. They, they, the brokers knew who I was. And, um, it, it's worth, it, it served its weight in gold in that regards. But I set the, the purchase up as follows. I said, look, I need 
90 days worth of due diligence to make sure that I'm even going to get support from the city to do what I need to do. I need to downgrade the zoning. There was a retail component in the zoning that um, I was going to have to do 50% of the first floor in retail, which I didn't want. I wanted to do all multifamily. And, um, and so I made, I told them I'll come to the table with $50,000 day 90, 50 goes hard. And I come with another $50,000. So it's a hundred thousand, but 50 of it, which is non-refundable. And, um, and I want 90 days worth of due diligence and then 120 day close. So I have seven months to close on the property. So now it's a race. So the second I, I got these terms, before we even had the agreement worked out, I have my architect working and we're already doing neighborhood outreach. We're doing, we're already setting up meetings, informal meetings with the city, um, letting them know what we're, what, to see if they will support yeah, yeah. what we're doing. Um, and so that's the first step, by the way, is you, you get the city's uh, support and then, um, and then we go to work with, uh, with uh, conceptual drawings, and then we do a formal uh, application for a zone change mm-hmm. and, um, and entitlements. And so we'll come in with conceptual drawings, which do cost a few thousand dollars to do, but we still keep it inexpensive. So for under $7,000, we can go in and put a, a $55 million project together conceptually. And um, we go to the table with it, present it. We go do a neighborhood outreach meeting where we see if what the neighbors are going to dispute against what we're doing. And, um, and then once the city gives us support, then we just go into planning and zoning and we go for planning and zone, zoning approval. That's usually a couple meetings. That's usually two months because mm-hmm. there's only a meeting a month. Then once we get planning and zoning to approve our plans, then we go in for city council and then city council comes in and they're the ultimate yes or no. And if city council approves it, usually they're looking at everything. They're looking did we resolve some of the concerns of the neighborhood? Or are they going to have people screaming at them in the neighborhood? This is where a little bit of politics comes into play. Um, we'll usually hire lobbyists and uh, as consultants to help us. I was going to ask you about so this. So there's a little bit of a, a political ploy, little donations that might have to go yeah, for. I'll, I'll, I'll for, tell you my story in a second. <laughs> go on. So, so we'll do this all on the front end because most people start doing this stuff on the back end. Not you do knowing. It on the front end. Yeah. So we already know the process. Yeah, yeah. So we're already massaging relationships from the front end going into these things and going through this formal process. Yeah. And then we um and then once we get our city council approval after all the massaging of political parties and everything else that's going on, then um then we'll close on the land. Got and it. we'll we'll we have to get Will you close even if it hasn't been fully entitled or approved yet? Well, you have to because you can't get the full approvals till you own the land. Got it. But you know, 99% yeah, you know. you're good. Yeah. Like my, my Youngtown project that I'm stabilizing right now, we did the exact same process and that one's finishing. We're, we are, we're renting. We're 50% leased right now and that one's getting stabilized and we took that one. We closed on that one all the way to the finish line with entitlements mm. and approvals. And then we closed on that one. And now two years later, we're finishing it up. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the political side of things because it's interesting, man, because a young guy like me, um, I really don't care too much about politics, uh, which I don't think many young people do because it's not like affecting our business at all. Um, But I've met a lot of old school real estate guys and they're like, Ryan, you need to start supporting, you know, these political guys, they're the governors and the mayors and the whatever. And I'm like, why they like, yeah, when, I, when do I need anything? He's like, cause you're going to need a favor at some point. And I was like, for what? I'm not going to jail or anything. Hopefully I don't do anything stupid. He's like, no, you're going to need a favor for like a deal. Not. Yeah. It, and maybe if you did get into trouble, you might need a favor, but he's like, that's just the way the game is run when it yeah. comes to getting things approved and everything else. And I'm like, 
all right, dude, like who should I donate to? Like, I don't even know. He's like, you start building it now. He's like, I can hook you up with like a lobbyist and you know, these people and you pay them on a monthly retainer and they'll just make sure that people know who you are. I'm like, people already know who I am. What's the deal? And he's like, yeah, but they don't know who you are until you pay them. And I'm just like, man, this is, is, is a crazy a, world we yeah, live yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So dude, I was you, man. But I, that's politics. Yeah. That's why I never did business in my own hometown. It, it, it would, it would, it would, it would piss me off, you know, that I had to do this and I resisted it forever. Mm. And, um, and when we started going in scale, I realized that it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, shit, I, I should have started playing that game a whole lot earlier. Yeah. But we don't do it where we put them on monthly retainers. So I make it all performance based. I, I would do not encourage putting them on monthly retainers. Got it. Um, I think that's all, that's still all a crock of shit. Um, when make them work. Yeah. yeah. Know, only make them, make it production based. Um, and I do it based on, on what they deliver for me. If they can get me some offsite approval money through some grant money and stuff for my tax project, incentives, tax incentives, stuff like that. I'll do it. If they can really move the needle to help me with entitlement approvals and stuff, yeah. I'll pay them. Like I just paid one ten grand and then another 10 grand on the back end. So $20,000 to get, to get it done. And that's through, um, but it's not through the politicians that you're paying. It's the lobbyists and the consulting work, the consultants that you're paying because they have the relationships right? Um, it's illegal for the politicians to take the money from you. And so, but you can, you donate can donate to, to their them. campaigns, but there's a threshold and they're small. It's like 5,000 bucks that their maximum donations are, but you'll host a party for them at yeah. your house and uh, bring in some of your wealthier friends or wealth, wealthier Other people donate to them. donate and, and support them, you know? Um, and even if it's not the, uh, the party that you support, <laughs> you, just, you just support them. <laughs> well, look, so. I mean, what's the point of, um, a political leader, I guess You're, like everyone has their own agenda, yeah. what they want to see get done. It's like, dude, that was funny. Just it's get this funny. real estate yeah, deal done for yeah, me, yeah. dude. Yeah. You don't even know, man. It's, it's, yeah, it's funny. It's you'll, uh, I, sometimes I don't even know whether they're Republican or Democrat in all honesty. I'll just yeah. be like, they just say, this is the person that has this area. In city council and become friends with them. You need to become friends with them and, uh, and we need their approval and they're going to talk to the rest of the city council. And, um, you know, and so you do these like weird coffee meetings that are very non-productive, but productive. <laughs> and <laughs> it and, makes me wonder like what Trump had to do because, you know, he's a real estate guy getting so many things approved in New York and, yeah. around the world. And then like, it's obviously become the president too. Yeah. Like, I just can't imagine all the things that he's had to go through the last 40 years. Well, look at one of his good friends is Giuliani, right? Yeah. So like that was at a time in the nineties where Giuliani was like a God in New York, you mm. know? And, um, that's when Trump was just having a heyday. So yeah. What did he him and his boys do? just were able to just go to town and just develop like crazy. Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, there's there's a threshold in that too. Um, you can't just do whatever you want. There's um, because then you don't get the voters right. So they're they're very the, the politicians are very methodical on how they do things. Um, because yeah, they they're not just going to approve your stuff. It has to work. It has to follow <sighs> regulations. There's um, they're looking at um, if you piss off all the neighborhoods and the and the your voters, they're not going to vote for you, and you're going to lose. So they're looking to try to what's the best interest of their, their people, their yeah. voters, um, but also supporting you. Um, and they, they're trying to mitigate. But generally, you know, like building these brand new buildings is going to be good for yeah, the area. Like is. they're nice. They're new. 
um, you know, people get bent out of shape over just different things. Right. Yeah. I mean, you get, you're going to always have local people who just don't maybe understand. Um, I've seen that in big bear a lot where, yeah. um, you know, I started, I'm like, do you guys realize that you would have no jobs if there was no Airbnb? Yeah. I don't understand why you're thinking this is a good idea to oppose, yeah. but you know, people are ignorant. It just is what it is. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I always say I'm, I'm, I'm the people everybody loves to hate and then they love, they, they benefit from everything that we bring to it. That's them. what I'm saying. They just don't like, really get it. Yeah. They um, but I just think about, I don't know, just like the game, like you said, that has to get played. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It is an interesting game. Safe. It is a very interesting game. I resisted it forever. I was getting too old to resist it anymore. Ryan, if I, in, in this game, if you really want to scale, you've got to, there's a level of embracing that you've got to take, you know, whether you like it or not. You got to kiss some babies. Yeah, you do. So you get it entitled. Obviously now it's worth way more before it was just some like raw land for a single family home or something. I don't know. And now you're going to build 200 units on it. What's the reason for 200 units just to make it worth your time? Economies of scale, all of it. Yeah. There's, there's different reasons, right? So one, anything over a hundred units, institutions start becoming a lot more interested in right. the assets. Uh, better buyers. Better buyers. The, uh, the, 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 the pool of buyers is different. Um, the cash, the return on investment, if you ever sell is a lot greater. Um, and in scale, things are safer. Um, so I always tell people the more, the, the more dense you can get it, a project, it, the safer it is for a safe example, this project, I said, okay, we're at 160. How, what is it going to take to get to 185? And I and I explained it to the architect like this. So I explained it to you like this. Two units will pay for the elevator in a four-story section. I want the vast majority of it three stories because of the cost to build. But this one building, um, why don't we do this one last building <clears throat> higher on the back? And let's go four stories and let's take the density to 185. And if we do that, then two, two units perspectively will pay for the improvements to get it to the fourth story and the rest of it. And then each unit may cost us a hundred and sixty thousand, hundred and eighty thousand dollars a unit to, to finish out, but they're going to be worth 300,000 a unit. So now each unit I'm, 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 I have an extra $150,000 worth of upside value that I get to utilize to collateralize into my build that makes my project safer. My mind immediately goes to, why not just make the whole thing four stories? Yeah. So parking is why oh. we don't have the ability for parking. So we, um, we don't get so much density cause then it takes too much parking lot. We can go four stories, but we, now we don't have the, the room for parking. So basically you're just trying to build the max amount of units for the land that you have. We That's are maximizing it. everything, bro. We will, we will push over parking limits and then we'll get engineers to say, Hey, they're over, but they're not but according to national averages, they're actually under. <laughs> so we'll pay, we'll pay engineers, traffic engineers yeah. to come in and do traffic engineering saying, I know this is your regulations, but in reality they're under. Yeah. So we do a lot of that, which is what we're doing on this project oh. where we're, uh, we're, we've, we're already, we're already pushed. We've pushed every parameter. We've maximized density and we've squeezed the towel and the juice out of every corner. We could, this, this is fully maximized. At yeah. This we're point. just There's nothing we're just more you to, can build. And yeah. The land is what, it, and that's where you want to be, right? Yep, that's the, where you want to be. Best, yeah. best and highest use. Got it. You know what I want to be? The more I talk to you about this is dude, I just want to be like Trump where you throw my name on it and then I get money. Yeah. Like that's the goal. Because if you just look at like what he, like you said, dude, just I'll take 10% of the building, just use my name and my likeness and I'll, I'll, I'll promote it. And I'll like, 
you know, make it up to the Pineda standard and then let's roll. Yeah. And you know, because like I even think about Marriott and any of these big hotel chains, they don't own the hotels. No, they're franchisees. It's just their flag. It's just their name. Yeah. You're you're just getting the Marriott name and you're getting their expertise of how to operationally run it. You're getting their infrastructure with their rewards and they have a few corporate owned properties, but the vast majority is not corporate owned. That's know? where the, that's where the game's at dude, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. But you got to get there, right? So yeah. You, so you got to get there. So everything, like I said, that yeah, Trump had on. to build all of his own yeah. buildings to get his brand and his reputation. And yeah. Like I look at these 90 year olds and I'm like, damn, I'm only 50. I'm still young, you know, still like, <laughs> we're, we're moving in that direction. Right. Yeah. But we, you, you do it cause that stuff becomes more passive, you know? And it's just like, th- that's the game. That's the real game. That's what I'm saying. Like you build up towards that. And, um, you want to hit those, those big, the big B word, you know, that's how you do it. Yeah. Building, being able to license your likeness. That's the, I mean, look at Jordan. Yeah. You know, Jordan, ain't making his shoes and his clothes. It's like, yo, just just slap the logo and let's, let's rock. Yep. That's how he had billionaire status. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Man, dude. And he got his own golf court. We need the, that that's actually where I've been actually learning a lot of this is because I want to build my own golf course and residential community. Yeah. And it's like, all right, well, we're going to have to get a piece of land. We're going to have to go through this whole thing that you're talking about. Get this thing zoned for 300 homes and a course. And And the money's in the real estate. Once you, once you sell off all the real estate, just sell the golf course too. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, just do the whole thing. Unless you have something that produces cash flow for other than the, than the golf course itself. Right. Condos, something. Hmm. HOA fees, something. Well, these country clubs make money, dude. Yeah, because they're they have um yeah, they they have something else. Well I mean they got members dues every year. Yeah. It's economy of scales. You gotta build something that has those high um country club fees. Oh yeah. Worked into them. Oh well no, this is only luxury, dude. So I mean, I was running the math on some clubs I've joined and I'm like, okay, they got three hundred members. Um I paid a hundred grand. Yeah. That's thirty mil right there. Yep. And just that. Annually. And that's just like the first people. And then they have the, the monthly dues. Let's just say they're 2000 bucks a month of 300 member. I'm like, all right, they're making yep. 600 grand, you know, and just dues. Then they have food and beverage. Then they have, they don't make no money on food and beverage. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've done owned hotels. Their food and beverage sucks. You know? <laughs> well, Alcohol, the, but they're going to have weddings. They're going to have the big events. Those will make stuff money. Just covers cost. Yeah. So the, the, the money's in the subscriptions and in the, in the fees, that's yeah. where the money is. The Everything else fees. just covers. If you can just get them to break even, you're doing good. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've studied that business so much. I, I bought, I bought a hotel back in 2006, sold it right before the recession. Thank God. And I, I was just, it was Howard Johnson. It was just long enough for me to learn that I didn't want to be in that business. <laughs> so I was thankful, but everybody I talked to, if you can just get the hospitality business, which is that's what you're in yeah, to break even when you're in the entertainment business, then you're doing good. And so wedding venues, all that, it's just, you just want to play the break even game. If you can get it to break even, you just don't lose money on that stuff. You're doing good. Mm. Um, it's the subscriptions is where the money comes in. Yeah. So you got to have that higher end course where annual fees, monthly fees, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. It, it pays for, that's where your profits come in from. Yeah. If you could break even on everything else and go make, you know, 10 mil a year off the, the fees. Yeah. That's a good business. That is a good business. And then, well, you know, like what, a lot of these um, developers do. I recently learned this is like, okay, so they develop this 300 home community, right? Well, 
they go get investors and everything else with it. And so they'll make profit on the actual normal development, but they stay on as the real estate broker. And so they get 3% of each side, you know, of of the buy and the sell. And then every resale. Yeah. In the community. Yeah. They did that to us in uh, Ty Lopez. And I did that in uh, Puerto Rico and uh, in the uh, St. Regis over in the Bahi side. Uh And um, they keep everything in house. Yeah. And it's a Marriott property. Yeah. So imagine if you're getting the the annual just resale commissions. Yeah. Because now it's like the development, it's a one and done, but not. Oh, yeah. They hog tie you in that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. You have to use them. On the buy and the sell. Yeah. Because in in there, and especially in markets like that, it's real political. It's small. It's small enough. It's real political. You won't sell it if you don't go through them because they'll, they'll make sure that it'll blackball you. Yeah. It's really hard and difficult. Yeah. So that's an interesting business model I've been looking at because I'm like, Man, there's a lot of ways to make money and build network and build yeah. just an epic thing. Which and is it's a passion fun too. Yeah, it's like passion for me it. at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah. If your passion can go make a bunch of money. Yeah, absolutely. So why um, you know, new development versus just buying existing buildings, fixing them up, stabilizing them and everything else? For me, it was because I uh the syndication model, when you buy them, you got to give up 70% of, of the asset yeah. to, to do it. Plus, I would have to raise a lot more money. And at the time when True. I was doing it, I, I got to go in. If I buy a $70 million property, uh, I got to raise $14 million on an 80% loan to value, right? Mm-hmm. So that's $14 million. When I first started doing this, I was like, damn, I didn't have the bandwidth to raise $14 million. But I could go buy a piece of land for yeah. a million dollars and turn it into a $5 million piece of land. Because the entitlement, that, that's your value. I only add. have to raise $2 million to do the same 50, $60 million property. Yeah. Plus then I'm able to get my bandwidth in my band entry was a, I was able to get into the game. Yeah. So I, I had to put in more work. So the ground up game for sure is a lot more work, but my upside potential is so much greater. And I've been able to retain hundred percent of them too, doing it the way I do it, which how would somebody get into the ground up game? They have to resume into it, right? So it's it's one of those things where the way I compare it is like to college. You you go into college, you spend five years for a four-year degree, most people. And um, and what do you get out of it? A $60,000 a year job? That's what the average person getting out of college gets. So I, I tell them, you know, learn the single family residential ground up game, right? And, um, and uh, you'll make six figures doing it. And um, when you do that, it puts you in a position where now you can go, there's economy of scale. So you can, once you do one home, you know, you never want to do one again because it's a waste of time. You want to do a minimum of two at a time. Yeah. Because it takes you just as much management. Buy a subdivision. Two. Just knock them all out. And, and I don't know if a subdivision, if you want to do that, I always tell people eight, eight to 12 a year is perfect. Any more than that, you start to manage the Yeah, beast. a little cul-de-sac. Yeah, just a little cul-de-sac, carve a street out. Yeah. If you want to do eight homes, 10 homes, 12 yep. homes. Um, nothing more than that. We got some students in our program who have been doing that and they've been doing great. Cru- they crush it, man. I yeah. do. I still He's like, do I don't even want to flip anymore, dude. Like I'm yeah. just doing this. I, that's all. I still do that because they're simple. The risk, the risk is not very high. Um, the re- do you feel the like return? the risk is a little higher in that just because I don't know where things are going to be two years from now when it's like in development. Yeah. You got to build a business model that's recession proof. Okay. And what I mean, there's nothing hundred percent recession proof, right? But the problem is people try to push deals and they try to convince themselves that it's a good deal, even if it's not. And they try to make, they try to make the numbers work, even though they don't, you got to push a deal to break. And if, if you can push that deal and it still doesn't break, then it's a good deal. Stress test it. 
Yep. Because, and that's why it's so hard to find the right piece of land. That's when I, cause you're just 99% of them suck. Yeah. 99% of them suck. They, they, they won't do the press test. Like look at, I'll tell you my Youngtown project. I bought a, uh, I bought a building in Youngtown, Arizona, which is right by Peoria for $1.8 million. It was listed for 1.6. I paid a wholesaler 200,000. The bank thought we were freaking crazy because it had been in the market for four and a half years. Whoa. And they go, they, they, they told us, they go, you're overpaying for this asset. It's been the, you guys do, they called us. You do know this property has been in the market for four, for four years, right? Why would you overpay you $200,000 for this property? And I said, no, no, you don't understand. We're going to turn this into 104 units of apartments. And I said, you can't look at it as a, as an office retail play because the office is dead. It was only 30% leased. And, um, and so he only gave us $700,000 for the loan to mm-hmm. buy the office. And, um, and I, I turned, I leveled part of the building, turned the rest of it into 44 units of apartments and went vertical with 60 more units. And, um, I spent just shy of 3 million renovating the 44 units, spent another, um, another 7 million building out the six, uh, the 60 units. And we're into the whole thing for $13 million, including debt service. And we just got it appraised for $31 million. Ooh. We're going to do a cash out refi with a HUD loan in this shitty market. And we'll take $5 million out, have the rest of the equity. And I think we'll cash flow 450 grand a month for us on our NOI after, after our debt service. Wow. Our, our bottom line after debt service will be 450,000 a month. That's crazy. In this shitty market. Right. So we thought it was going to be worth 37 million. And really the loan they're going to, they're looking at it. They're appraising it now closer to 27 million. Cause when we looked at it, 31, but still, five million dollars out in this yeah. shitty market. We'll, we'll, I'll cash that thing out again in two, three years from now. Yeah, at a lower rate, with more cash. Rate. Yep, and we'll just keep that thing. Will just produce for me forever. And I've done cost segregation on that thing, that, and so we're we're not paying no taxes, nothing. Explain to me how the wholesaler was able to. Okay, this property's on the market. Nobody wants it. Yep. How did the wholesaler have the skill? I guess to say actually because he just had experience and he said hey i know jerome will know how to figure this how did that happen well the gentleman who actually the wholesaler that bought it for me he also did a adaptive reuse but in in retail and office and you probably know him i don't know if you know john trotman okay you know john? i don't know no anyways john's very was very capable of taking it. he just didn't know my whole business model he hadn't done anything this big but he knew he knew that he knew me he knew that i was going to make some money on it so he was just stubborn. He was able to strong arm me. And so that really was what it came down to. I mean, I tried everything I could to take it down, to take it down for under that. And um, I just wasn't moving any needles with him because he had it tied up. And he's like, well, I'll just do it myself. So this dude had it tied up, even though it'd been locked up forever or yep. been on the market forever. Finally, he sees the potential of it, locks it up, goes to you, says, this is the deal. I know what it is. You know what it is. We're the only two that apparently know what it is. Well, I took too long is what happened. Okay. I took too long. Um, and he, he knew I was up to something. So because I took too long studying the deal on his, on his dime, um, he started to figure, he started putting two and two together. Because we like, were doing Jerome hotel, must really like because we deal. were doing hotel conversions. Right. So he um, knew that I was like, and so I think, uh, there was some mutual, um, contacts and the broker kind of heard us talk in, um, with, uh, at the property. And I think it kind of got back to him. So, uh, over communication uh, was bad. On <laughs> you showed deal. your cards too much. Yeah, I showed my cards. I showed my, my but you know, at the end of the day, no one's feeling sorry for me. Heck no, no dude. one's feeling sorry for him. You know, yeah, he made his two hundred G's. You guys are making yeah. freaking ten so, plus million. So it's all good. So you that was a basically your version of an adaptive reuse yep. with the office. And is that what you're trying to do here with all your office I'll space do all or that what? Stuff you know. I mean, we um we'll do. I, I did a bowling alley um, in the <laughs> Northwest. We did tore it down. I mean, it's just oh, you took a bowling alley, knocked it down. Yeah, knocked it down. I mean, so it's what all, do you think is going to happen with all this office space? 
they're going to need to do adaptive reuse on all this stuff. I mean, so that's what we're waiting for. You know, we, if we fear the guy and you know how to do it, we'll turn it into warehouse. We'll do it. We'll turn it into, um, storage. We'll turn it into, um, fulfillment centers. We'll turn it in. I'll turn it into whatever there's profit that's going to cash flow. It doesn't just have to be apartments, right? So you think just everyone will just turn into something else. It sounds like you're like naming every asset class. Well, I mean, there's going to, it depends where it's at. You, yeah. There's the it, middle of the city is not going to be a warehouse. Yeah. It just, it's, you may be, it, it may, the, they may approve it. it. That's where your political relationships and all this stuff comes into play when you're going to city council and zoning and knowing what you're doing, knowing what they're going to, what they're going to approve and having business models. Right. So for somebody coming in that's never done any of the above, just stay, keep it simple. Stay in something that is, mm-hmm. you know, basic. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah, that stuff's going to have to get repositioned into an array of different things. And it might be partial. Like you might keep, uh, you know, there might be a 20 story high rise and maybe they keep retail on the first three floors or, or retail on the bottom floor and two layers of office and the rest of it has to get condoed, you mm. know, but it's still an adaptive reuse project. Yeah. You just got to pencil and figure it out. You know, you have tenants up on top and it's, you, you know, that that thing's been functioning at 30% occupancy. Well, great. Push all those people down, do their TIs, get them on long-term leases. And then the rest of that, that's never going to fill because it's historically showing it's, it's cards, uh, do an adaptive reuse, make it into residential. What's the best way to think you think to make big equity in today's market? Big equity in what asset class? Just in, in any asset class? Yeah, like to create, you know, like you, you just told me, man, this thing's about to make four fifty a month, you know, this yeah. this reuse. Um, I don't know what your new construction's planning to make or how much value was created from that, but like yeah. what what do you think's the big big money thing right now? Yeah, warehouse is gonna be big. You know, I'm building one up in DeKalb. Um um, Illinois right now. Um, and I got free land, so I did it. Um, that's a whole different story on how we do that. Um, and it's not free land, it's free land. It is free land, but we bought the building for what it was worth, uh, with another warehouse on it, 150,000 square feet of warehouse. It was on there with the 26 acres, 13 that was only getting used and 13 vacant acres that so we you got sold essentially it? for free. No, we kept it and we collateralized the building that was cash flowing oh. to build it. And so I'm zero money out of pocket, collateralized the asset, the cash got flow it. from the asset. And took the 13 acres and just paid for the entitlements. And now we're building another 160,000 square feet. So I'll have 310,000 square mm. feet for the price of 150,000 square feet. Wow. You know, so, so we'll do stuff like that. We, that's, that's getting ready to go in, into, it was supposed to come out this year, next year. That's one that got pushed, pushed yeah. over. So um, warehouse is going to be big. Housing, man. There's just, housing is big and affordable housing. Um, What's your definition of affordable we, a lot of it's based on AMI, right? So it's all based on average um, income for your area. And um, it's the average median income, but you, you take a look at, we call it attainable housing. So mm-hmm. workforce, like, okay, where, where are the average person? Like, like even some of your staff, right? Like yeah. where are those people that are making under a hundred grand a year are going to live? Um, how about the people down at the grocery store that are checking out your groceries? The guy at the clerk down at the post office, where are the people that are delivering your Amazon boxes? Where are they going to live, right? It's becoming expensive. And uh, we are pushing into a renter's nation and um, there's not enough uh, rooftops. So attainable housing is important and you can, you can create more adaptive places to live that are attainable for people through adaptive reuse projects. The cities are even doing them. I just, I just read an article where the city of Albuquerque is 
just bought an old hotel and they're doing it. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you're pretty bullish in 2024 on just pretty much most sectors of real estate. If it makes sense. I mean, I'm still more bullish in the, in the housing market, in, uh, in multifamily. Okay. And we do. Cause call- most people don't like multifamily and commercial right now. They, they think things are going to go crazy and just plummet because all these loans coming up due and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, they are. And, and it's bad. But see, when you now, but the difference is, is that we didn't get crazy when everybody was getting crazy. Yeah, yeah. So now the cards are exposed to you. So if, if the cards are exposed to us and you know how to migrate around those cards mm-hmm. and you know how to move forward before we went into it blindfolded, right? So this, that's why it was so dangerous is that people are doing these five, one arms syndicators were expecting to hold an asset for three years, maybe five years at, at the most. And then they get to that f- fifth year and the interest rates go through the roof. They're fucked. They're screwed, man. They can't do nothing. Yeah. You, know? you can't refinance it. Cap rates land up going up. Values get crushed because of it. And that's what I talked about on Friday. As I said, that's where opportunity comes from. You take the same asset, but the cap rates go up, the values get crushed. The banks don't even want to look at it because they can't even underwrite it. And so where do you go? You mm-hmm. can't. The banks are taking a scrub on it. You're taking a scrub on it. And so when you build it, and if you underwrite it in the current market conditions, knowing that we're sitting at a 7% cap rate, and if I can't build it at a 7% cap rate, then I can't build it. Then the project's no good. Mm-hmm. You just don't do it. But if you can build it, and, and I go into it knowing that I may build it, but I'm not pulling no cash out. Mm-hmm. I'm not making, I'm only making uh, my cash on cash return on, on my um, monthly cap rate and, and uh, the cash flow that comes in. And so I may build that whole asset and make nothing. Yeah. You know, like I've even, I even have one this year that I said, you know what? I've owned the land since 2007 and um, I'm going to collateralize the land and I'm not even going to pull my money out on the land and I'll probably just build it for free. Mm-hmm. and know that, but in five years from now, no one's going to be feeling sorry for me <laughs> because we're going to cash out on those things big time. And I'll just keep doing it over and over and over again over the course of time. Yeah. No, and I so, love it. So, you know, I'll work, I'll work for free as an entrepreneur. We, we do that a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, you know, but obviously we have an ulterior motive. It's going to come. Yeah. Um, actually, many times we don't work for free. We actually pay to work. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Yeah, there's a lot of times we do pay to work. Yep. You know, we get paid nothing, but we're, we're, we're coming we're out of pocket, working it out. Yeah. Yeah. To build your office, to build the infrastructure, yeah. you know, to do all that stuff. Putting out social media content is free, but it don't cost me free. Yeah. It doesn't it cost, cost a lot free. of money. It costs a lot of money to put that stuff out. Yeah. It's one of the most expensive time consuming businesses out there. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. Well, bro, I learned a ton. I actually want to partner with you on a deal. So we'll have to talk about that after, cause I want to learn the game yep. and understand how you're doing it from the inside and, it's super exciting. I know one day I want to get into development because I just love creating new things and um, I love new. <laughs> it's a fun game. Yeah. So I'm excited to check out your projects and, uh, you know, just see how you're doing it firsthand, man. Yeah. So for anyone who wants to follow you, where, where can they find you? Pretty easy to find. You know, um, I'm sure we'll have my name in the, in the show notes. Yep, yep. And um, if you guys go to any social media platform, just plug in Jerome Maldonado. Uh, we got hacked on Instagram last year. So now it's the Jerome Maldonado. There we go. And, um, the real, yeah. And everywhere else, just Jerome Maldonado. Pretty easy to find. You guys cool. Well guys, hope you enjoyed this episode about new construction. I learned a ton. I'm sure you did too. Make sure you subscribe and we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. I just did a 50-day challenge live on YouTube. I closed 125 contracts in 50 days. We don't manufacture deals, we find deals. And if you're sitting there and you're trying to manufacture that deal, then it's probably going to be a mistake. The hard part becomes dispo. How the heck do 